good morning, everybody. Uh, this, my name is Gareth Tarr. Uh, this is Brooklyn's Members TV. And today we are talking to uh, Simon Fisher, who is the author of this book here. Um, which is uh, the biography of S.F. Edge, one of the um, leading pioneers of uh, British motoring. So we're here to talk with Simon about his uh, book and uh, and obviously S.F. Edge. And uh, so Simon, uh, would you like to introduce yourself? Perhaps you could tell us uh, as a start, uh, you know, uh, who you are, where you come from and how you got to write this book. Okay, thanks, Gareth. Uh, yeah, I'm Simon Fisher. I was um, born in Surrey um, quite some time ago. Uh, qualified as a chartered accountant in London and then almost immediately uh, went out to Africa on a six-month contract. There's a bit of a, a joke out here that a lot of people come here on a short contract and they end up staying for, for life which is what I've done. So I've, um, from the age of 25, I've lived pretty well all the time in Eastern Africa. Um, always had a, an interest in early motoring um, and managed to keep that up despite being in Eastern Africa, which isn't the sort of center of- uh, There must be a limited motoring. amount of material that's certainly available close by, I guess. Uh, no, indeed, yeah. Um, but in a way, it sort of drove me to focus more on, on history of motoring rather than the actual sort of fettling of, of cars, um, which I, I would have done more of if I'd been in, in the UK. And is early motoring your uh, specific interest or are you just interested in the history of the motor car all around? Well, the history generally, but, but Edwardian and vintage uh, I've owned a couple of Napiers at, at different times. Right. Um, both, of, both of them were 1913 Napiers. Um, and I, I, at the moment, I have something called an HE, Herbert Engineering. Oh, I've heard of that, yes. I've heard of a HE, yeah. Right. Okay. So maybe that leads us into SF Edge. Obviously, you mentioned Napier and, and the two names are are fairly closely linked. Um, why? What brought you to write a book about SF Edge in particular? Well, partly because it's not been done. He was a significant character um, in your personality in early motoring, and there isn't a proper or wasn't a proper biography yeah, no. of him. Um, he wrote this book, My Motoring Reminiscences, uh, in 1934, which some people refer to as an autobiography, but I don't regard it as that mm. at all. It's strictly what it says on the tin. It's, sure. it's My Motoring Reminiscences. It's sort of anecdotes rather than his career. It, yes, uh, and it doesn't talk about his personal life at all. In fact, he never wrote about um, his family life. Um, and this, uh, the book, My Motoring Reminiscences, just has a photograph he wanted to include that happened to have his first wife in it. Right. And the caption was just, my first wife, brackets, deceased. <laughs> right. And that was it. I, I thought it was really odd. And that sort of um, sure. 
it made me interested in, in finding out more about him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, picking up that sort of idea, I, I, I a couple of years ago reviewed a book and we did a, a similar Brooklyn's TV interview with a guy called Oliver Hill, who wrote a book about Louis Coachman. And I think, and, I, and I'm just reading a book about Louis Chiron, an Italian book, actually. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm grateful, and, and I'm sure others are, that, uh, you know, somebody has gone out and recorded the history of some of these people, because certainly, you know, if you read the SF Edge book, your book on SF Edge, clearly SF was a very important person in the early days of British motoring. And it deserves that that story is told. And, and I say Louis Coteland, very much the same. Um, he was, you know, very important in Sunbeam. And Sunbeam were Britain's premier racing team in the early years. So um, slight overlap there. But, but uh, so, I, you know, I think it's um, important that these books get written. And um, so I, I, I personally would say, well, thanks for doing that, because it, I think that's important. Um, to what extent when you wrote that, and I think you sort of touched on it there, did you feel that you were writing the definitive history, nobody's done it, I must get this right? Is it, was there a, ever a sense of that when you wrote the book? Or was it just purely, you know, I want to put this on the record or what? No. Um, yeah, a bit of both. I, I was really interested in his family life, which is... Mm -hmm. There was nothing about when I started. I, I knew nothing about it. Sure, and I had to, to dig quite quite hard over a number of years. Um, and yeah, I, I just thought his his he needs to be remembered, as I say in in the book. He's he was a significant character. I I wanted um, to put the record there. Uh, you know, sure. The book. So following on from that, um, obviously. We, we say he's important. I've read your book. You've obviously written it and done a lot of research. What do you think were the key achievements of SF Edge? What do you think were, you know, where has he made a difference in motoring history? Right. Well, I mean, in, in two ways, because he sort of uh, helped establish the industry. He persuaded Montague Napier to start making cars. And it's quite possible that Napier wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for, yeah. for Edge. Um, and Napier, well, in the early years of the last century, Napier was the leading British manufacturer and um, the leading motor racing uh, car uh, at that time. So yeah, he, he helped establish uh, the the industry, and then he um, helped establish motor racing as a as a British sport. Right. Um, he his main uh, his first achievement, real achievement, was winning the 1902 Gordon Bennett Trophy, um, which was the first time a British car had won an international motor race um, with a with a British driver. Uh, then he went on to uh, set his 24-hour record at Brooklands just before it officially uh, opened or his first race meeting. And the first couple of years of Brooklands, he 
um, or Sammy Davis um, said, as I've quoted in the book, that he really sort of um, helped Brooklyn su succeed. It might have been a big flop if it hadn't been for, for Nape, uh, Edge and Napier. Yeah, he, he brought uh, a lot he, of publicity to Brooklyn. Yes, he, he actually had a racing team. I mean, he was perhaps sort of the first manager of a racing team. Right. Um, with a, a, fl a small fleet of Napiers and very active at Brooklyn's uh, until late in 1908. Okay, okay. I mean, going going back there to uh, the Gordon Bennett race in 1902, I, I recently reviewed a book about the 1903 race, which of course was held in Ireland because Edge had won the 1902 race. Um, one of the things I found amusing or interesting when, it, when I read uh, the SF book, your book, um, was actually the uh, early Gordon Bennett races, which wasn't the set case in 1903, but in the early uh, races, they were actually part of another race. Um, and, uh, but only part of it. Um, and the, the main race was much more open, whereas for the Gordon Bennett races, one of the key things was the car was wholly built in the country of the entrance. So obviously the Napier, and, and, even, and then the year before, in 1901, I think I'm right in saying, um, Edge, I think got disqualified from the Gordon Bennett, although not the other race, because he had to put some French tires on. But when it came to 1902, he didn't. And uh, could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about that 1902 race and, uh, and uh, SF's adventure on that and uh, how he won the race? And, and obviously, yeah, it's sure. the consequence, it was held in 1903 in Ireland. Yes. Um, as you say, it was actually, there was a Paris-Vienna race and the Gordon Bennett um, was run concurrently with that and finished in, in Innsbruck. Um, but, but Edge did then drive on to, to Vienna um, and, and was placed sort of midfield in the, in the overall race. The, the Gordon Bennett, the rules were that um, it was each country entered a, a team. And so in fact, it wasn't, <laughs> The winner of the Gordon Bed, it wasn't Edge or Napier, it was um, the Automobile Club of Great Britain. <laughs> that had, uh, in theory, had entered the, the team. Sure, he was privileged um, to drive for them, was he? <laughs> yeah, 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 yes. And uh, as uh, I think you're saying, uh, as a result, the, uh, with the rules were that the winning country uh, would hold the race in the following year. Um, road racing wasn't allowed in, in the UK in 1903, but they managed to get an act of parliament passed so that it could be held in Ireland. Um, and as you say, there used to be city to city races like, like Paris Vienna. Um, but there was the Paris Madrid race um, that had been such a disaster just before the 1903 Gordon Bennett. Um, I remember that from reading the um, the book about uh, the 1903 race because, as you rightly say, I think the Paris, the notorious Paris Madrid race that was ended at Bordeaux because there had been so many people killed and it was so badly managed and everything. One of the things when the Gordon Bennett race in 1903 was held in Ireland um, was it was on a closed circuit, which 
um, was deemed and, and probably proved to be so much safer because they could control the crowd a lot more. Um, so uh, that was quite an interesting feature of that race. But they were those city to city races, uh, which were the early events, were um, somewhat precarious to say the least, particularly with cars that had very limited brakes. So uh, if you were in the way of it, it wasn't going to get out. Your, the, the vehicle was uh, sort of immune, you know, it was uh, coming towards you at great speed with no ways of stopping, really. Yes, I mean, quite a lot of spectators were killed in those early days. Yeah. Um, yeah. As well as many drivers and mechanics. And, and in that so, 1902 race, uh, Edge was the only finisher in the Gordon Bennett part of it, wasn't he? Was, is that correct? Yes, that's the sort of irony. He won through um, perseverance and endurance. And yeah, there were three French cars uh, that, that didn't make it to the end. Uh, and one, one other British car that, that didn't get very far uh, either. So he was the only one to finish. Sure. But that made him the winner. And, and it, was a, it was a deserved win because it was a very tough endurance uh, race obviously yes they, 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 just to get to the end was an achievement in itself yeah we've talked about a little bit about his sort of mid-career if you like in terms of uh, motor racing one of the things that um, obviously comes across in the book was actually before the motor car there was the bicycle and he was very involved in bicycle racing and that industry as well and developing that industry would you can you tell us something about that uh you know how how uh, what, what is how, how important was he in that world and you know what were, again what was his achievements and stuff. yes again he was a very significant um player in in cycling um prominent member of the annerley bicycle club which was one of the main bicycle clubs at the at the time um and this was just before the the car was allowed on the roads of, yeah. of England, so cycling was was the thing, and um, particularly racing. And yeah, I mean the, the the racing itself was amazing. The roads weren't very good, um, but the, he would regularly do a hundred miles in in six hours. Yeah. Um, sometimes quite racing. some athlete, I should think, in his day. Yes, although um, apparently he was. He had weak lungs when he was a, a child, wasn't allowed to play sport at school. Right. It was, it was his own decision against his doctor's advice to, right. to train himself and get fit. Um, so, he, yeah, he went on to be a, a very successful um, cyclist. And, and he was involved in that, in that industry. I think he was a salesman, wasn't he, or even more it, than that? Yes, um, he started as a salesman. Um, I think mainly for Marriott and, and Cooper. Um, then he got um, sort of spotted by Harvey de Croo, uh, who made him the, the manager of his um, London branch. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he was, he was quite an important figure in the, the early years of the Dunlop Pneumatic Tire Company. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Uh, um, and, and um, yeah, developed that as a tire, pneumatic tire manufacturer. Yeah, and then I think was it eighteen ninety five? He went to France, to Paris, to 
meet a, a friend of his from the cycling fraternity, uh, and that was his first ride in the motor car. That's right, yes, he, he went, it was Fernand Charon mm -hmm. um, that he'd met on cycling races. Um, Charon didn't speak English, Edge didn't speak <laughs> French, but they, <laughs> they had a common bond of cycle racing. Of course, um, yeah. And, and yeah, Charon took him for a, a drive around Paris and that, yeah, that changed his life. Sort of. I mean, I, I, there's a quote in the book, uh, he said something about... Uh, the horse was sort of dead as a means of transport. I forget, you know, do you, can you remember the exact words he said? Yeah, I remember something pretty close to that. This is the end of, of the horse as a, a means of transport. A means of transport, yeah. Which yeah. was quite uh, visionary of him, I guess, at the time. I mean, yes, the it, car it was... was very, very much in its early years. I mean, that's only 10 years after Ben's three-wheeler you know so and and there was very little in terms of motor and suit no, virtually nothing in the uk at that time i know yeah and of course initially it was a rich man's toy it wasn't seen as a, a practical form of transport and he bought his own car about three years later was it 1898 if i remember rightly yes he he bought a panard first from harry lawson um, and then he bought um, De Dion motor tricycle, right? And um, yeah, and a, a number of motor tricycles actually. Uh, he had a what, was, it the, the, was it the Panard? You said a Panard, didn't you? Was his first? Car. Yes. Was that was that a car that he sent to Napiers to have improved? That's how the relationship started, is it not? Yes, yeah, so it, it was. Yeah. He, he, um, first of all, gave it to Napier and said, can you fit um, a steering wheel rather than tiller steering? Right. And, and pneumatic tires. And then it was um, switched from this hot tube ignition mm -hmm. um, to, to coil and um, spark uh, trans uh, ignition. And he very much um, encouraged, even more than encouraged, uh, Napiers to actually move into vehicle motor manufacturer, am I correct? You know, he, he yes, sort of correct, persuaded, because they were just an engineering company, were they not? Yeah, they'd been doing um, weighing machines and printing presses and right. you know, that sort of thing uh, until Montague Napier took it over. Right. And yes, Edge then said, can you, can you build a new engine? altogether for this panard, mm -hmm. um, which he did, and then persuaded him to build a complete car. Sure. I mean, the I first guess- of which was in the thousand mile trial. Right, which was in which year? 1900, yeah. And, and the thousand mile trial, where did that go? Uh, well, all around the UK. It, 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 right. Um, <laughs> London up into Scotland and, and back again, it was- Right. It was uh, several days, I think a couple of weeks. And Edge participated in that? Yeah, yes, he, he drove this Napier that had only just been built. It had already been sold to a customer, but um, he persuaded the customer to right. So the customers got, got a slightly used motor car then? It, yes, well, it was on condition that the customer could ride with him. In right. the trial. Oh, I see. Right. So the customer yeah. hadn't been trashed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it and it did pretty well. It, it wasn't 
um, deemed to be the overall winner, which was um, uh, Charles Rolls in a panel, I think. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He uh, was very but, much. But, a, well, was he, he's one of the characters yeah. that comes out in the book as well as one of the sort of leading um, British motorists of the time, Charles Rolls. Yes, well, in many ways, he, he as it says in the book, he copied Edge's uh, sort of um, business model. Yeah, he set up his own car sales agency, and then found a, a British manufacturer to team up with. Sure, and was like the exclusive agent for for Royce's cars. Yeah. Um, okay. But then met an early death, unfortunately. Yes. Yes. Uh, indeed. Um, okay, that, that sort of brings us into uh, really SF's uh, business dealings, because not only was a, he an early pioneer in terms of racing, and, and uh, I mean, even if you take a step back to his cycling days, he, uh, what you mentioned in the book is that he was, uh, when he was cycling, he was almost indulged by his employers his racing career simply because you know the idea of win on Sunday, sell on Monday, went as far back as as cycling. I mean, which is often used in in the motor racing world to justify motor racing, but it happened even before that in cycling. But to move us back to say the uh, the early 1900s, the Edwardian era, uh, Edge was very much involved from the commercial side of the motor industry. And made a lot of money. Um, maybe you could tell us something about his uh, business activities. Yes, um, incredibly complex his business affairs. It, it, I spent a lot of time trying to work out what was going on, um, and you just couldn't track everything. He, he had a finger in a lot of pies. Um, but obviously, his SF Edge Limited, which was the sales agency, the exclusive yeah. sales agency for Napier, was the main business and probably made most of his money that way. Um, but he, some of the complexity was this relationship with Ducrot, that he was um, involved in other companies with Ducrot, uh, which eventually sort of Ducrot took over and then um, later on edge. And there were various uh, conflicts of interests and uh, quite a few court cases as well, I think, weren't there? Yeah, yes, he, he had to sue De Croo, um because he reckoned he was entitled to some of the profits of the panel agency. Right. Um, and there were other agencies going on at the same time. Um, he had some involvement in Ariel as well as um, there was Clement or Clement Pannard and Gladiator, um, a short uh, agency for Regent Car, mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, various other things. Sure, sure. I mean, it was it was an industry. I'm sure that was evolving very quickly. Uh, I think I'm right in saying the the first cars built in Britain were were as late as. Uh, is it 1897, I think, the first British-built cars were? 1896, 1897. So you're only really just talking about the first few years of the British motor industry, really. Um, Absolutely, so, yeah. And yeah. so there would be these entrepreneurs bouncing about. And, uh, yeah. and then, of course, he, um, he, he 
we, we touched on he, he had various legal cases, uh, but he fell out with everybody and, and sold up, didn't he, really? I, well, I say he fell out with everybody. Perhaps you could say, explain that a bit more. But he, he, he moved completely out of the industry and into farming. Yes, well, he he fell out with, with Napier. Uh, I think on there were problems on both sides. Um, Edge felt that actually Napier wasn't uh, keeping up, particularly with Rolls Royce. You could see that Rolls Royce were doing better than mm -hmm. than Napier. Um, they had become a bit stuck in their ways. They weren't very innovative around sort of um, nineteen. 10 onwards. Um, so he was getting a bit fed up with, with Napier. Napier was fed up because Edge was making more money out of it than <laughs> Napier, more money per car sure. um, than Napier, the Napier factory was. Um, so yeah, they, they, they decided to part company. Um, Edge sold his company, SF Edge Limited, Mm -hmm. to to Napier and eventually they, they fairly quickly those were merged um, together uh, and a condition of that because um, Napier paid him about 160,000 pounds which is quite a lot of money in those days yeah, certainly. Um, but on condition that uh, Edge didn't compete with, with Napier sure. so he had to stay out of the motor industry altogether for seven years Right, right, right. And he, he already owned a, a lot of farms, land and, and farms in Sussex. So devoted himself to pig farming. Right, right, right. It's interesting you should mention, uh, obviously, how Napier was losing the edge there. I, I did, came across recently uh, a story, sort of, uh, that um, you mentioned, we've mentioned Rolls-Royce, and of course, to a large extent, Rolls-Royce's reputation as the best car in the world came from the 1907 London Edinburgh run and they kept going and did 14 and a half thousand miles doing nothing more than change tyres I think and a little bit of basic maintenance work which sort of proved the quality of the Rolls motor, uh, motor car and I think Napier at the time were sort of claiming they were the best car in the world and, and I think there was some sort of uh, endurance event they'd been involved in, is that right? Or do you, are you not aware of that story? Yes, the, the, um, they did a London Edinburgh uh, drive uh, as well. Um, but I think uh, the reality of it wasn't quite as successful as, yeah. as Rolls-Royce. Um, of course, they, Napier, I'm, I'm not quite sure, when did they get out of car making? It was fairly, not that long yeah. after that, was it? Well, 1924, they, after the, right. well, during the First World War, they moved into aero engines, the same as Rolls-Royce. Right. Um, after the First World War, they, they continued making, they had a very successful aero engine, the Lion, um, but they tried making a, a car, a luxury car, again, competing with Rolls-Royce. Mm -hmm. um, only only sold about 200 of them up until 1924 and just just gave up they had a lot of labor problems and yeah. strikes okay and ironically they nearly bought bentley in 1931 yes in 1930 they they 
tried to, to get hold of the Bentley company, which was in receivership, receivership and were, were outbid by Rolls-Royce in a slightly sneaky way, <laughs> as is um, well-documented elsewhere. Sure, sure. So, the, so they just gave up the idea of cars and stuck with their aero engines. Of course, sure. went down Second World War, very significant aero engine builder again. Of course, of course. Um, let's go back to the farming years. Um, SF in, and mentioned the First World War when he actually got involved in the Ministry of Agriculture, was it? And he, he sort of had a bit of a run in with uh, one certain Winston Churchill. Yes. <laughs> Not so at that time, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the Ministry of Munitions, which had a, a, a very wide-ranging um, brief, actually, because it had a, a, a food uh, control department mm -hmm. and an agricultural machinery department, which is what Edge was, was put in charge of. Right. Because um, tractors, surprisingly enough, and the tractors were in quite an early stage of their development. You'd had these sure. um, steam traction engines that yeah. were doing most of the farm work. So it was at the time the tractors were uh, taking over from steam engines and um, mm -hmm. he was trying to promote that, the, the production of, of tractors and hence food production as a result. Um, but he wasn't suited to working for the government. He'd been his own boss for a long time um, and was fairly opinionated. Sure. And he, he fell out with the, the um, Sir Arthur Lee, who was in the, the food control department. And that led to Winston Churchill asking him to resign, mm -hmm. which he refused to do. But in, um, so Winston Churchill had to appoint someone in his place. Uh, right, right. Actually, Edge was proved right, I think, uh, was he not, rather than... Uh... They, they were effectively he went against the grain and uh, but he was probably writing what he was saying is that, is that not correct yes i mean it's it's difficult to tell but I, but i think um that's probably the the case that, that he, the trouble was he just um was too outspoken he if he thought something was wrong he said it was wrong and yeah. not everyone in government likes that not that Winston Churchill ever did that, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah. So let's move on to his post-World uh, War One career. Um, and obviously he, he got involved in AC cars and Qubit as well. Um, perhaps you could tell yes. us something about those two mix of cars and uh, what Edge's involvement was. Yeah, well, uh, clearly he was very keen to get back into the motor industry as soon as he was allowed to by this um, non-compete agreement. Um, almost by coincidence, I think he'd, he'd driven an AC during the war. His, um, right. his more economical car for sure, time sure. use was, was a small AC with a four-cylinder engine, so he knew the company. Um, and then uh, Weller, who was the engineer in NAC, designed a six-cylinder engine, a very good six-cylinder engine, which would have appealed to, to Edge as well. So yeah, he started buying up shares as soon as he could. 
uh, when he had enough shares, and, and it's not clear what sort of percentage. I mean, he, he wasn't owning 50% or more of the shares at that time, but he had enough shares to be invited onto the board of AC. And he quite um, quickly became the governing director of AC. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the, the two previous owners, Weller and Portwine, uh, resigned from, from the board, probably still held some shares. Right. And so he take, uh, by that stage, he'd taken it over completely. Mm -hmm. um, he then bought into to Qubit, which was trying to be a, a mass production manufacturer, not in Aylesbury, not very successful. Um, he thought combining it with AC could, could increase um, production capacity generally. But the, it was difficult times for the motor industry um, yeah. and, and for the economy generally. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Qubit went under first and went into liquidation. Uh, and then eventually AC, it, it went in and out of receivership a couple of times right. during the 20s. Eventually went into liquidation and um, that, that was the end for for yeah. And, he, and at, at that stage, I mean, he pretty much retired. Am I right in thinking? Or yes, he really. He, he, he although he'd lost he, quite a lot of his money, he still could afford to sort of retire. And he, he had a fairly young family, I think, didn't he? Still at that stage. Uh, that's although right. Yes. Was, he, 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 maybe he we can talk about his personal life a little bit more now. Uh, obviously, he was married first to a lady he met through cycling and I think lived down the road from him, didn't she? Um, yes. And then later on, uh, that, that marriage didn't work out eventually. And then I think after the, sec after the First World War, he got married a second time, is that right? Or was involved with the lady? It, it was during the, the Second World War, it was 1917. It was just at the time he was appointed to the Ministry of Munitions. And, Right. Yes, I mean, cynically, one could say he married her so that she could look after the farm. Right. He went off to, to work in the city. Right. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure how long they'd had a relationship before that. Yeah. But she, she started as his secretary, became his sort of business manager, farm yeah. manager. Um, there's a lovely bit of um, video on, on Pathy News's uh, website. Mm -hmm. Showing her running around in a, in a pigsty, sort of thing. <laughs> so she was really mucking in on the on the farm. And she was, um, and, and did, she did was, run it while he was in Ministry of Munitions. Yeah, yeah. and she and she was her name and, and her background. Um, she was Myra Martin, right? Um, not very much known about her uh, background. I think she was uh, orphaned fairly early on and. Uh, lived with a, an aunt and uncle, uh, trained as a stenographer mm -hmm. um, at, at some point, and we don't know the date she became secretary to, to SF. We assume it was after he split with Napier. So be, yeah, no. And his relationship with his first wife was well over by then, wasn't it? I think that, that broke up sometime before that. Yeah, again, date not certain, but, but they were separated sometime between 1907 and 1910. Yeah. 
And then Eleanor, his, his first wife, died in 1914. Right, right, right. But he met her through, uh, did he meet her through cycling? Or I, I, I can't remember. She read, led, She lived down the road, I think, didn't she? Or something as well. Yes, I mean, she, she was a, a neighbour. Um, I think four years younger than him. Um, and, and she was quite keen on cycling. Right. So they, and they went on many long trips. So they would cycle to Selsey, which is a, quite a ride. <laughs> yeah. Um, from from Norwood to, to Selsey. She must have been quite some lady herself, I should think, you know, quite, again, athletic and uh, quite sturdy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, and probably somewhat of a pioneer for uh, women in those days, you know, cycling, sports cycling, I would have thought was not something lady, young ladies did. No, um, yeah, she she did lead the way on that, and she, um, she featured in cycling magazines two or three times as, mm -hmm. as being a sort of pioneer ladies cycling. Okay, so let's move towards uh, the later part of uh, Napier's life. Sorry, Nap Edge Edge's life. Uh, as we say, he uh, got involved in AC and uh, Cubit, and eventually those. Um, those unfortunately didn't turn out particularly well. Um, how did he spend his later years, and you know, um, when did he die? Right. Well, it, he really withdrew from public life. He he'd lost a lot of money uh, with Cupid and AC, mm -hmm. and it looks like he had to sell all his farms, but, but ended up with a. Uh, a house where he uh, brought up his two young daughters. Mm -hmm. um, he was a bit involved with the Veteran Car Club. He wasn't a founder of the Veteran Car Club, but he he acted as judge on a number of events of the Veteran Car Club in the 30s. I, I, I guess as a elder statesman of the industry and celebrity, if you like, in that uh, in that capacity. Yeah, yes, certainly well, well regarded by the, the Veteran Car Club. Um, and then there was uh, in at Brooklands, there was in 1937, the opening of the Campbell circuit. Right. Where someone lent him a 1903 Napier, right. which he drove on the track in, in 1937. And he, he opened the Campbell track. Campbell's yeah, yeah, well, uh, it was um, the Dame Ethel Lock King that actually opened the the track, but then he drove on it in a in a 1903 Napier. Right. right. Yeah. Okay. And that and, was pretty well his last public appearance. Uh, yeah. Sure, and he, he died. He was in poor health at that time. He in the right. photographs of Brooklands in 1937, he looks very frail. Yeah. And he, he was about 69 then, but right. he looks his, his age. And he died only a couple of years later, I think. 1940, early 1940, yeah. Right, okay, okay. And his um, gravestone is at, in Tilford, in, down in Surrey, uh, sort of. Yes, near, near Frensham. Yeah, uh, I've been uh, once, I, uh, we ran a, a Brooklyn's event to a museum just down the road and um, um, somebody said oh sf edge is uh, 
it's not a, a tombstone, it's a, it's a block of rock, isn't it? I, I struggled to find yes. it, but it's in the church at Tilford, which yes. is a rather nice, um, just off the village green there, the old church, and the village green with the pub, and it's a cricket bat pitch. It sort of really is picture postcard uh, England village green, but uh, that's where his um, stone is, and presumably that's where he was buried. Yes, well, he was cremated, so it's just his ashes. Ah, right, okay. Um, and his... Uh, very much later, his wife, second wife was buried there as well, uh -huh. um, probably just ashes as well. And before that, his his cousin Cecil Edge, um, who died at quite a young age, was right. buried there as well. So it's all three of them on the stone. Okay. And he lived out his last few years in Surrey, in Surrey there, or was he still down in Sussex? Um, no, it would be sorry. It was a house called um, Dentdale, right, um, in that sort of area. Okay, okay. Um, we've we've talked quite a lot about Edge and the like. I'd like to just explore a little bit about um, you know how you found uh, found writing the book. Were, uh, did you have frustrations in doing that, or did you find it uh, an easy process? How easy was it to research and write the book? Particularly as you're located in Africa, not uh, you can't walk, walk up to Brooklyn's and go through the archives or the RHC club. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I did spend um, several days at the Veteran Car Club uh, headquarters in Asheville. Right. Um, so it was almost like every time I was back in England, I had to spend one day at, sure. in, in the library at the Veteran Car Club um, because they. Uh, have the press cuttings that Edge kept mm -hmm. um, for most of his adult life. Um, there's huge books of press cuttings, quite sure. overwhelming. In fact, I mean, the first time I went there, I was just overwhelmed. I just sort of turned the pages and um, <laughs> where thought you were turning up for half a day. Thought, well, I should have been here booked a week, I suppose. Yeah, yes, yeah, like yeah, so it was like that. So, and it was probably another year before I went back and said, this time I must you know, sit mm -hmm. down with my laptop. And so how many years did it take you to write the book? Um, about six. Yeah. Right. And I have to admit, I almost gave up at, at one stage. Um, mm -hmm. I'd written a, sort of two or three chapters and got like writer's block. <laughs> and um, uh, one has to thank COVID-19 for... Right inspiring me to to get stuck in again i think, and, I think you've got, you've made off. a lot of people do uh, things they wouldn't normally do i i, I personally wrote an article well a, a double article for the brooklyn's bulletin on uh, sir henry seagrave and that was very much um i i knew uh, a local antique stroke gift shop to where i was working uh, had a collection of uh, second hand motoring books and I thought, I, I wonder if there's anything here I can read about that's relevant to Brooklyn's and read the Seagrave book. And that was my project when I was in lockdown was to write um, quite a large article on him. Um, uh, and, you know, somebody who, a little bit like Edge, I, it was some, my, my knowledge of Edge before I read the book was, it's a name that crops up and it obviously was important, what was important about him. And obviously the books fill me in on that. Seagrave was very much the same, you know, it was a name that I knew. So yeah, obviously, as you say, um, COVID, obviously we don't wish COVID would ever happen, but it did, it did, I think, change a lot for a lot of people. 
Yes. Yeah. And have you any plans to do any more books at all or anything? Uh, I'm thinking about it. I, um, the trouble is that Edge did stand out as a sort of obvious choice. Um, there was Charles Jarrett mentioned quite a lot in, right, in the book. Yes. Who, who does, I mean, he wrote his own book in 1906. He deserves a full biography sure. as well. Um, I mean, one of the uh, nice things in the, in the book, I thought in the book, is towards the end, you have a, a chapter um, about the characters that were around at the time and the other key characters. Um, we can just see from here. So I, th I thought that was an interesting part of the book to, you know, uh, talk about the personalities that were um, contemporaries of Edges and also had their input into the development of the early British military industry. One of the things about the book I noticed as well is, is that you actually got um, sponsorship from the Michael Sedgwick Trust. I think that's right it's called, isn't it? Um, can you just Trust. tell us a little bit about them and what they do? Um, I've, I've come across them. Um, yes, they, they were set up some time ago in memory of Michael Sedgwick. Who was I think a, in the early 80s, wasn't it? In the 90s? Yeah, probably, yes. Uh, he would have died around then. Um, yeah, I remember going to an early Bewley auto jumble where Michael Sedgwick was the, the commentator, had a very distinctive yeah. um, voice and um, would talk about Austins rather than Austins and things like that. <laughs> right. Um, so it was uh, set up in his memory because he died at a fairly early age, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and it's to promote uh, motoring history or books about motoring history. Um, so, and it has a group of, of trustees so I, uh, when I got a fairly advanced stage with the draft, I um, put in an application, asked if they could help with them. Had to pay quite a bit for some of the images where one actually pays for licenses to, right. to publish um, images from uh, help. And that's the where they help contribute to the book, basically. So, so they contributed to that. And then it, the book really had to have an index um, and that costs a bit of money as right. well so they, they um, sponsored the index. The actual index that the book takes a lot of effort presumably then does it? It, it would have been very hard work I, I thought I could perhaps have a go at doing it myself when I saw what was produced um, professionally through, through Evro I think. They, yeah I, I guess they, they have computer models these days that do that quite much better. It, it, it must be, but uh, yes, I, I couldn't have written an index like that. It's very detailed. Sure. Sure. Okay. So we we um we sit back and wait for the Jarrett book then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, it was either him or Harvey Ducrow who also deserves uh, an, a biography. Right. Well, so I, I do hope you you uh, move on to uh, writing those books. Um, okay, thank you. I think, uh, in summary, you know, I, I found the SF Edge book very interesting. Um, very pleased that you've, uh, as I say, taken the time and effort. There's no, nobody goes into writing these books for money. It's, it's uh, through your own personal enthusiasm. And, uh, you know, we've got now a record of a, a very key uh, character in uh, British motoring. 
uh, I'd like to thank you for um, giving us the opportunity to talk to you and um, thank you very much again. Okay, thank you for having me. That's, that's our pleasure. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye.